Hi, I'm Don Patterson. I'm here with three-time USA Olympic coach Terry Laskevich, and you're listening to The Front Row, presented by The Art of Coaching Volleyball. Our topic today, to grow the game, do we need to change the game? In other words, does volleyball need to change its rules to make the game more attractive to fans? Our guest today is Doug Beal, who recently retired after 12 years as CEO of USA Volleyball and was also the head coach of the 1984 Men's Olympic Gold Medal Team. Thanks for joining us, Doug. My pleasure, Don and uh, Terry. It's great to uh, be with both you guys today. Thanks for yeah, having welcome me. Welcome aboard, Doug. Well, let's start with the broad question. Uh, do we need to tinker with the game? Doug, why don't you give yeah, us some thoughts that's, on uh, that? That's a great way to start. Um, you know, my perspective is that we should always be evaluating the game. You know, is it meeting our objectives? Uh, how does it evolve as athletes get bigger, stronger, faster, jump higher, uh, hit the ball harder, etc.? Um, I'm not sure that uh, we want to constantly change. I think there's a lot of value in stability, uh, but I think we ought to be uh, looking at some objective of what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, what makes the game great? And are we um, performing based on the rules and the structure, the timing, et cetera, to that concept of the game? Uh, so, you know, I think, I think it has great value to certainly talk about uh, the state of the game and where it is and how popular it is and, and is it meeting uh, everyone's objectives or as, as many as we possibly can. So that's sort of a, a framework of, of my thinking on this, uh, this topic. And Doug, I, I certainly uh, agree that uh, with the player's physicality, particularly you know, how tall the players are, how high they jump, how strong they are, we need to keep evaluating the game. But you know, the other part, I know you and I have talked about this for a long time, we need to market this game better. You know, it's like uh, one of the most boring sports that people say are soccer, and international soccer really hasn't changed much. And it said, hey, this is the way our game is, but we're going to really push to market it in a better way. And they did a pretty good job at that. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of a little bit of a counter, but I agree with you. I think that the tone of this is how do we change some rules or look at should rules change or what else can we change on the game? Yeah, it's interesting that soccer uh, runs an entire half without uh, commercials, I guess, uh, on, on, on most uh, broadcasts. Uh, they've been able to do that. It, it certainly isn't uh, the model that you would see from uh, most sports that were grown here in America. But, uh, um, Doug, what, what do you think about the marketing aspect of the game? Is, is, is that as big a part of it or, or a bigger part than, than the rules? You know, I think they kind of go together. Um, one of my thoughts is that soccer uh, benefits from kind of a unique culture uh, that has been in place for a very, very long time. <clears throat> and its popularity is established because it, in part, uh, is one of the easier games to pick up for young kids. Um, you know, essentially, there's no gravity involved in the sport. It's probably one of the easier ways to describe it. And so it has an advantage, I think, in that um, 
players tend to start that sport at an earlier age than many others. Not all, but maybe across uh, a lot of different countries and platforms. And, and so they, they become um, attenuated to the game, I guess. And so, um, so it doesn't have some of the challenges that I think some other sports do uh, in the in the area of marketing, um, but I think it's I think you have to take advantage or, or consider both of these uh, elements. You know, you certainly have to market the sport, and and that's becoming increasingly important as electronic communication and digital communication is sort of the the dominant way that the younger generations communicate and and absorb content and, and interact. And you also have to have a game that is compelling and interesting uh, and entertaining uh, and, and fits within the, um, the, you know, the different vehicles that, uh, that the game is, uh, is, a, is broadcast or delivered on. And you know, certainly streaming is much different than uh, over-the-air broadcasting or cable. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a pretty complex issue. I'm not sure there's a single answer. I'm not sure we want to look for a single answer, but we definitely have to be sensitive to all of those, those, those areas for, uh, you know, how, how any sport evolves or, or changes or grows. Well, let's take a look at some specifics then. Uh, uh, the clock is one thing that uh, you talked about. Uh, volleyball doesn't have a clock, but it, it, would a clock be something that would help it in terms of the time problem for television, cutting down on the time between serves, um, maybe lessens the risk that matches will be too short uh, rather than just tinkering with the, the scoring. Uh, should we have a clock, Doug? Yeah, I think um, I'm not sure I can answer should we or shouldn't we, but I think a clock is definitely something we ought to be examining and, and frankly pretty closely there there are very few sports that don't operate within a, a clock structure um and so i think um it would be a very big change for volleyball and that's probably uh, one of the largest um i don't know arguments against it uh, but if but, i look but, across Doug, a range of sports again with a few exceptions you know, maybe golf, tennis, and baseball, uh, and I think even baseball is starting to um, in, incorporate timing into uh, certain parts of the sport. You know, volleyball is one of the very few that does not have a clock involved. And when um, when you hear the argument, or, the, or certainly the initiative from the International Federation, that we have to package the sport within a, a two-hour window that is essentially being driven by television or sponsors, broadcasters, etc. Um, I think a clock, you know, absolutely has to be considered. Um, if you're going to stay with the format that is currently being used around the world, whether it's two out of three or three out of five, um, you can certainly stay within that that sort of arbitrary time, but you're also going to wind up with um, matches at the very short end of that time. 
And so, you know, from my perspective, there are a lot of advantages to examining the use of a clock. Um, broadcasters certainly love it because you can have fixed timeouts and fixed periods where you can incorporate the advertising. Uh, spectators actually, in most cases, like it because it gives them an opportunity to uh, either use the restrooms or buy products. And so the, the facility owners and the advertisers like it. So I, th I think there's a, a pretty strong rationale that, you know, whether it, it ultimately becomes um, a part of our sport, it, it needs to be looked at. And I think it's, it's further important to point out that for many, many years, uh, USA Volleyball, before we were USA Volleyball and when we were the United States Volleyball Association, um, ran our national championships with a clock. Yep, and I was going to say that, Doug. The eight-minute clock where time starts and stops when the ball's in play, and you have eight minutes, and you have to win by two. So th that was still the old side-out scoring. You play to 15, or you play until the eight minutes has expired. And as you remember, a lot of times in the national championships, there were some great matches. There were 10-8, 12-10, 8-6, and, you know, I, I, I actually like that. And as you said, if, if we want to control time, time must be the variable. It can't be, um, hey, we're going to have uh, a, an easier way to fit two hours if it's rally score. Time has to be the variable. And I think we need to investigate that if possible. Well, I guess the pushback you would get from the traditionalist, Doug, who you were talking about, uh, who would say it's a, it's a radical change, would say, hey, tennis doesn't have a clock. Baseball doesn't have a clock. You mentioned baseball maybe use a few time elements now, but essentially the game does, doesn't have a clock. Why can't volleyball just be what it is without the clock? No, and, and I, I very much understand that. And, you know, my own perspective is that before you start talking about the clock, um, I think you want to question the motivation that we have to package the sport in this predetermined window for television. And, and I think there is some uh, validity to that. Volleyball is, is clearly not at the top of the food chain for sports around the world. And so if we're getting told by broadcasters that there will be more opportunities to put the game on television, we will provide more windows if you can um, guarantee us that it will fit within a certain um, time frame, then I think there's some rationale. I'm not sure that we're hearing that. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure we're, the, we're, just, we're just hearing that they would like it. It would be better if volleyball was packaged within this 90-minute to 120-minute window. And, and please remember, I think, also uh, that that's not – two hours of play. That, that's much less than that. Um, and so uh, I want to make sure that there's sort of a, uh, I guess, a quick pro quo. That we're, we, as the sport, we're going to get something. If we make this kind of radical change, we're going to get more exposure. We're going to get more hours on television. We're going to get more connection to broadcasters as partners, certainly in the United States. But really all the way around the world. Then I'm really good with examining a format, and there could be 
almost too many to name uh, that would use a clock. But Terry, you mentioned the, the ball in playtime is really not a, a difficult thing. And as we both said, it was used for years and years within USA Volleyball by, you know, really relatively novice uh, individuals running the clocks. And, and it was not used in any other event until the Nationals. So, so it was certainly not something that the players had great experience with, but adapted quite easily. So it's not a challenging thing, I think, from that perspective. I just, I just want to be sure that there's, there's a trade-off, that it really benefits the growth of the sport uh, and creates more opportunities for people to, uh, to see volleyball. Well, Doug, I'm glad you mentioned that because having been on the coaches' commission for the FIVB when they changed the rule from side out to rally score, one of the biggest rationales that at that time the president of the FIVB, Ruben Acosta, said, if we change to rally score, they're going to cover us on television. And my comment right in the meetings was, do we have that on contract from Brazil, Italy, the United States, China, Soviet Union? Could the television broadcasters say, we'll be on television more if we change the rule? You know, so I'm saying that the same thing as you just mentioned. So we go to the clock format. Are the broadcasters in line with this? You know, can we get from them uh, at least a guarantee that we'll be on television more? You know, that's that's what I'd like to see. I think it's really difficult to get uh, sort of a, an ironclad guarantee. And I think one of the things that certainly we need to do regularly in this country is uh, um, examine exactly the number of hours that we're on television, how much growth is there, um, I think the FIVB should be doing the same thing. I know, I know we all talk about this a lot, and clearly there is an enormous growth in the opportunities to see uh, volleyball on television, some of which is coming from cable and over-the-air broadcasters. Um, but a lot of it, I think, is coming from the, the collegiate conference uh, networks uh, which are really hungry for content and have been wonderful for volleyball, both women and men, and also wonderful for a lot of other sports. So I, I certainly agree with you. I think before we go down the road of this kind of a radical change, we, we want to know what the upside is for the sport. Is it really going to pay some dividends? Because it is, it, it is a radical change, at least for the the traditionalists, the purists, and, and for the sport broadly, and and it would add, I think, some in some cases perhaps some significant costs just in terms of personnel to operate the clock and and make sure that uh, all of that is taken care of. Well, let's uh, switch to open hand tipping. Uh, the debate is uh, some people think it's boring, too too easy a way to end the play, and and a rally killer. Other people think it's a strategic play that's very much part of the game and should remain. And I think it's probably more of an issue in the women's game than it is in the men's game just because of the, the height of the tip in the men's game uh, isn't as effective. Uh, it doesn't go down as often. But, um, Doug, I, I think you feel like uh, open-hand tipping, uh, particularly in women's volleyball, should be eliminated with the idea that uh, we'd get better rallies. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, let me, let me just preface this a little bit. Um, when I think of, of changes that I'd like to see in the rules, and, and um, 
I get even a, a, a first preface to that is um, I think uh, you, you need to test any of these things and you need to test them pretty significantly. But I'm coming from a perspective of uh, what I'd like the game to look like broadly. And, and one of the, um, I don't know, one of the very fundamental natures of the sport is keeping the ball in play. Um, you know, the FIVB's mantra right now is keep the ball flying. Uh, I think historically, you know, the whole the whole name of the sport, volley, uh, is, is important. And so I'm interested in uh, doing things that will extend the rally or extend the volley. And to do that, I think you have to make it a little bit more difficult, maybe a lot more difficult, to kill the ball. Uh, and we see it, I, I think we're seeing it, frankly, already um, in, the, in the growing popularity of the women's game versus the men's game. And I'm not sure that that can be measured, but, but there's some empirical data, I think, around the world and certainly in the United States uh, that would favor um, spectators enjoying the women's game because the rallies are longer. And they're not dramatically longer, but even one or two net crossings on, on average, you know, makes the rally more compelling, more exciting. Uh, again, I've had lots of personal observations, so it's my empirical data that it seems that the longer the rally, the more engaged the crowd gets in the sport, the more exciting uh, the game is, etc. So... That's where, in my view, open hand tipping plays a role. Um, most tips go down at a very high percentage. They're killed, um, certainly in the women's game, and, and probably mostly out of uh, the center hitter, the quick hitter, the, the first tempo attack. Um, and so I, I think that's something we ought to look at. And again, we have some history here. Uh, for a long time in USA Volleyball, open hand tipping was illegal. Uh, which made the rule very similar to what is currently being played on the beach, which I actually also like for eliminating open hand tipping because it, it makes the two, the two disciplines of our sport a little bit closer together. So that's really my rationale. Um, I'd like to see um, the rallies extended, and I think we define that by how many times does the ball cross the net. Um, and so... Eliminating open hand tipping for me is an obvious way to uh, to move in that direction. Jerry, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm 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 torn a little bit because you know one of my feelings is that we have um, made the referee central to deciding. The referee, he or she, are going to decide what's good and bad as to the play of the ball. And and compared to other sports. You know, other than a handball in soccer, nobody's saying, what else should I be doing in the game? Or let's say if I'm passing a basketball to Don, they're not judging how that pass is thrown. It's, if it's a good pass, it's going to get to Don. So I'd like to, and not, even talking about tips, hey, let anything happen. You know, uh, that's the way I look at the game. And then good players are going to adjust. And in the women's game, we said, hey, there's longer rallies anyway. So the tip would make it maybe less rallies correct. But uh, 
I'm kind, uh, I, I'm not the purist. I want let, let him play is what I'm after. Well, let anything happen. That reminds me of uh, Aldous Berzins, who put, played for Doug on the on the gold medal team in '84 when they changed the rule and allowed uh, the overhand pass. He says it's not pass set hit anymore; it's gaff set hit. And so that's well, a- he complained about that when he was my assistant so, from '92 to '96. The game is no longer a pure game. So, so I guess uh, I guess the letting anything goes is certainly going to get some pushback from traditionalists. But the, again, it, it comes back to what Doug said: is it, could it make the game more engaging with rallies? Uh, so let, let's talk about that. Uh, we'll wrap up this segment with free blocking. And that's something, Doug, you and I talked about the other day, and I thought it was an interesting point you made. Um, let the blockers go over and mess with the ball uh, before the third hit. Uh, eliminate that rule. And likely what will happen is offenses will begin to pull off the net a little bit, which will promote a longer rally. Uh, tell us what you think about that. Is it a good change to uh, let any front-row player uh, block anything? Yeah, again, um the, the motivation for me is to try to extend the rally. And I think, um, I think Terry is correct, that, and, and Don, I think you're correct, that the open-hand tipping elimination would certainly be most um, uh, impactful on the women's side. I think something we would call free blocking would have more impact on the men's side. Um, I know from uh, evaluation that we did uh, during the time I coached and, and after, that you can define the side-out attempt, uh, efficiency or the kill efficiency uh, almost directly by the quality of the reception or the quality of the dig or the quality of the free ball pass. And the very highest kill percentage was when uh, the setter uh, had to jump set but was uh, easily capable of doing it without violating the net or you know reaching over the net, et cetera, but just took the ball very, very close to the net uh, and at a point high above the net. And so that's a ball that potentially could get blocked. Um, the downside in my mind is uh, there's some injury potential. I'm not sure we ever want to make a rule that um, might increase injuries. But I do think that if the blockers were uh, able to block anything, uh, a set or uh, even a a ball that has been set but hasn't quite been attacked, I think that's possible also, that in a very short period of time, the passes would be coming off the net and you'd have a, a little bit less quick attack, um, but you'd have uh, a better form block more often than we do right now. Again, I'm, I'm interested in increasing the number of net crossings. And so I think this would be something I'd be really interested in, in uh, seeing, uh, which means you have to study it. How does it work you know, for men and women, how does it work at the different levels of play, et cetera? Yeah, but I, was... I think it, I think it might have some real value. And re- remember, right now, that at least at the very highest level, um, we rarely average three net crossings in the men's in the men's game, including the serve. And when we really have a long rally, 
it's maybe three plus or four net crossings. That's not a long rally. Uh, and most of the time, if you go to YouTube and look up the most exciting plays, they are defined by many, many net crossings. And there's a couple of sites now that um, aggregate the longest rally and how many seconds and how many net crossings, etc. So I think it's a really compelling part of the game, and that's the the fundamental endpoint that I want to you know turn it around and say how do we get to that without completely changing the fundamental nature of the sport. Well, that's a good place to end this segment. We're going to be back uh, with Doug again in our next episode, part two, and we'll talk about more rules, including serving, uh, which I think uh, impacts uh, what we're talking about in terms of rallying quite a bit. Doug, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Doug. Great. My pleasure. Good to talk to you guys. And we'll be back again next time. You're listening to The Front Row. Thanks for joining us.